I've told you on many occasions that it will be this generation that makes the difference. You saw that represented in the video that we watched this morning. Through technology, through transportation, through communication, uh, the task is at our doorstep. And the question is, what will we do now that the baton has been passed to us? There are those today who have risen to the occasion. They have made a commitment to go forward this summer to take hold of that baton, to ask themselves the question, how can I contribute to reaching this world that God loves so much? The Apostle Paul makes reference to this in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. I'd like you to listen as I read. He begins by saying, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads every, everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. Continuing on in chapter 3, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. In verse 3, you show, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the results of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. I'd like to quickly take a look at this passage as we focus our attention this morning, beginning in verse 14. Always beginning with a heart of gratitude. That's very char characteristic of the Apostle Paul. If you look at most of his epistles, he always begins by saying, I give thanks to God on regular occasion. I do not forget in my prayers. These are familiar phrases as we turn to his epistles. All but two begin in that first chapter with phrases such as this, saying, I give thanks to God for, for the work that he has accomplished in your hearts, your lives. The testimony that exists within your life of the gospel and the change that it's had uh, in your family, in your friends, and then in you as an individual. And so Paul again starts off that way in 2 Corinthians 2.14 by saying, But thanks be to God, to whom we should always give thanks, who always, and I love the word always, I think it sums up uh, quite a bit for us with regard to the extension, uh, the breadth, uh, the historical perspective, that God will always lead us in the triumphal procession in Christ. I think of Dr. Pilkey's message, this week, where he reminded us that our true hope rests in the resurrection, that victory has been promised. We will all participate in that victory. I don't know about you, but I love living in light of that truth on a regular daily basis. I forget to, as Mr. Bookman reminded us, uh, and I appreciate Dr. Pilkey calling us back to the fact that we have been promised the victory. And Paul believed that, he experienced that, and he said we have the victory as well as we go forward to proclaim this resurrection, this truth, this hope that we possess. So thanks be to God because He will always lead us in a triumphal procession in Christ. And then on top of that, God's chosen us. Through us, He will spread everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For some strange reason, God has chosen us to be the vehicles for the proclamation of this victory, this hope that we possess. He involves us on a very intimate level with the reproduction, uh, the continuing on, the discipleship of those in the future who will come behind us, those who will grasp from us the baton for the next generation. And it's carried on from the, from the very beginnings of the early church. 
thousands of years ago to you folks sitting here in this room this morning, to the church in America, to the church around the world. This is not just about us, but the task has been met. The task is continuing to be accomplished by many who hold hands with us in spirit, if not in presence. We look forward to participating in that victory. He's promised to accomplish that. He's promised to accomplish it through us. But Paul chooses a strange analogy. He chooses the analogy of aroma to present a picture to us of what it will be like when we go forward in this triumphal procession of proclaiming the gospel. Broken down into two categories, simply this. To those who will not receive the gospel, to those who do not know the hope that we possess, we will be a smell of death. I've heard different missionaries talk about uh, being in some foreign lands, being in some difficult situations. But a gentleman by the name of uh, Orville Murphy, who was a missionary in residence here a couple years ago, talked about living in Cairo and planting a church in a place called the City of the Dead. It was a cemetery of over a million people who lived inside the city of Cairo. Their homes were built on graves. And when he began to talk about the smell of death, I thought it was a very accurate picture for what Paul attempts to communicate to us here. It's a very frightening smell, I would think, to many who will hear of the gospel from our lips this summer. They will be called into account for where they will spend eternity. The other side of the coin are people who are like us, who responded to that hope, that gospel, when it was presented to us. And that gospel is a fragrance of life, a sweet fragrance, a perfume. Like the smell of a rose or of a flower that's blooming in spring, it possesses a, a great attraction, something that is very sweet and delicate and something that we enjoy and take great pleasure in. We will be the dividing line. Those of us who go out this summer, those of you who will be involved in places of, of employment, those of you who will return home to address your families. It's one or the other. A sweet smell, a great fragrance of life, or the smell, the stench of death that we will proclaim. It is man's choice. I take great joy, great comfort in knowing that I was given the opportunity, the faith, the opportunity through Christ I was called to respond, and I've now possessed the fragrance of life, and you do as well. We look forward to proclaiming that this summer, and I think it's a great analogy that Paul points our way. But he continues on in this passage, and he says, and who is equal to such a task? I don't feel very equal to this task of proclaiming this truth. I simply have my testimony. I have God's Word. I have His Spirit that works through me. We all possess that. And therefore we can go boldly. And yet we, we go boldly, but with a uh, great sense of dependency upon God Himself because we know we are not worthy to contribute and to accomplish this great goal. In verse 17 he says, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the Word of God for profit. And Paul makes the great statement that we are not about financial gain when it comes to the gospel. When you think of the missionaries who've gone before us, we think of those who made great sacrifices. We're not in the business of making money. That means sacrifice on our part. But I think we're willing to make that sacrifice. And Paul reminds us of that in this passage. But our motive is not one of financial gain. He says, on the contrary, continuing on in verse 17, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity. The issue for us as believers is the issue of integrity. I believe the definition of integrity is simply you are on the inside who you say you are on the outside. 
we as believers can go forward with integrity. Who we are, who we've been recreated on the inside, we can speak with confidence externally that our message matches up to our life. And we can go forward with sincerity that we are about this task, we are about the resurrection, we are about this hope that Paul talks about. He also continues on in verse 17, wraps up, but we are like men sent from God, and I like that quite a bit. I think that conveys quite a bit of boldness in Paul's perspective. We are men sent from God. Those of us who will go out this summer, wherever our place may be, we are those sent from God. He has called us to this task. He's presented a work. Over the years, as I've worked with the students who've gone out on summer missions, our prayer, my prayer has always been that God will create the task. He'll create the work. And I believe as he prepares the work to be done, he also prepares the worker. And in that light, he's sending out workers this summer to simply do what he's already prepared for them to do. And so we anticipate that, as Paul does, that we're being sent out from God. But he continues on. I'm going to pick up in chapter 3, in verse 3, reading and talking about the people who received the gospel there. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. And I like this quite a bit. I guess there was a debate in the church at that time with regard to letters of recommendation. People needed to affirm that these men were qualified to proclaim the gospel. Paul reminds us that it is not by letter that we gain authority, but it is by the resonance of Christ within our own hearts and our lives that we have authority to proclaim this truth. And we can have that confidence as we go forward as well. But our intent is simply this. To look not to write a message on a piece of paper, to carve it in stone, as Paul mentions here, but simply to carve into the human hearts of mankind, those people we saw in the video, those who responded, those we know who know the truth, those who do not know the truth, the fact is to carve that truth simply on the unchanging palette of their hearts. And that's what we're about uh, this summer as we go forward for the rest of our life. And I just want to remind you, uh, as I quickly close looking at this passage, the fact is back at the beginning of verse 14, that we can all say, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for this simple truth. This morning is our Summer Missions Commissioning Chapel, where we take a time to invite you as a student body to pray, to encourage those who've made a step of faith that they will go forward this summer to a new environment, a place that they have not been before, to proclaim this truth, to attempt to write on man's hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the truth of God's Word, through the witness of our testimony, uh, to change the world, to communicate the love that God has so passionate for this world. What I'd like to do at this time is I'd like to invite all those who are going out this summer to come and join me on the stage. I'm just going to ask that if you could come up here and stand behind me. I have a few comments to make with regard to these individuals in light of what we talked about this morning. Come on, fill in as good as you can. 
These students who are coming to the stage, they are the students who have made commitment from among you. And we know you join them in heart and in spirit. Many of you have gone before them. Uh, these students join the 800 students who have gone before them in the years since the Master's College has started offering a summer missions program. We simply join the ranks of those who have begun the battle. They are those students who made a long commitment over this last year to train. I've been very proud of them. They've worked hard. They've made great sacrifices in their life. Their families, their churches stand behind them. The men who stand behind me in the white shirts kind of look like Mormons. <laughs> These guys have made the ultimate sacrifice. They are the leaders of our summer missions teams. And they started a year ago this week, April, where I invited them to make a commitment. And they began to plan and train and prepare a year ago today. I'm very proud of them. I'm very grateful for them. I hope that you will remember their faces, their names. Pray for them as they lead these students this summer. We have um, some faculty and staff who have been involved. Some are going with us this summer as well. But we represent you. We represent you as a student body as we go forward this summer. We also represent the home church. Our world vision does not just uh, go out with regard to our campus, but we're excited that every one of these individuals represents at least one home church who's made a commitment to stand behind them. There's people, hundreds of people, for each of them who are making a commitment to pray. There are elders who have recognized their faithfulness in ministry in their home churches and have said, we can stand behind these folks and send them out. Our administration uh, recognizes them as they go forward. And in a moment, we will be making reference to that. Their parents and their family and their friends have stood behind them. They've all had to secure references from all these individuals, their resident directors, faculty members. There are people who have made a commitment to say, not only will I pray, before, uh, pray for you, I will stand behind you, saying that you have the character of the people who are prepared to go forward. We're not perfect. They'll be the first to tell you. Uh, there's a little bit of an anxiety because we know we will be in a position to depend upon God in ways we never had before. And we could all tell you stories, and I love to tell stories, but I won't at this time, about what they will experience this summer. We'll look forward to hearing from this crowd, these exact individuals, next fall when we have our summer review show. But this morning, our intent simply is to encourage them, stand with them in prayer and support. Their commitment is to represent Christ and to represent us. I'd like to mention just a couple of things before we continue. At the close of chapel, uh, we will give you the opportunity to support them financially. There will be baskets at the door. Uh, I think that would be appropriate to ask you to see if you have any loose change in your pockets, if you'd be willing to write a check, drop a dollar or two in. I know you're poor college students. I've been there. I understand that. But we'd ask you to make that same commitment to them. If you have a friend who's standing on stage today, would you consider how you could support them? It's going to cost almost $200,000 for this group to go forward this summer. They've raised a major part of that, but there are still some existing needs. We're also going to ask you to pray for them uh, throughout the summer. And as you exit today, you'll receive a list of all the teams and the members on those teams that you can take home with you this summer. Put it up on your bulletin board, stick it in your Bible, uh, put it in your quiet time journal, whatever you do. Uh, I'd ask you to pray for them this summer. The dates of their trips will be listed there. You know where they'll be and what they'll be doing. They're your friends. They're my friends. I'm sure you heard from most of them. So you can uh, participate in support as you exit today. You've also been given a summary as you came into chapel. I'm sorry, a summary, a survey as you came into chapel, asking you where your interest would lie with regard to going next summer. We're in the process of recruiting our leaders now for the summer of 95. 
and we want to know where you'd like to go. We'll build our trips around your interests. So please uh, fill out those forms, drop those by the door, let us know where you'd like to go next year. These students standing behind you, I want to tell you where they're going this summer so you can have a great idea of the breadth of our ministry. We have three domestic trips. Uh, we'll be going to work with uh, or attempting to reach the Mormons in Utah. So we have students going there. We'll be going to the inner city of Chicago, working there similar to what we did in the city of Baltimore last year. We'll also be going to the Master's Mission, a remote training base in North Carolina. Those represent our domestic trips. Overseas, international, we'll be going to England and Scotland. We'll be going to Albania, to the Ukraine, to Siberia, to Kazakhstan, to Romania, to Japan, to Australia, to Papua New Guinea, to Africa, and Morocco. We're trying to get out there and go as far and as broad as we can. And these teams represent the interest that was communicated by these individuals last year when they filled out the survey. I get excited about this. I like this quite a bit. And I know you do as well. At this time, I would like to invite um, our vice presidents to come and to lead us in a time of dedication and prayer for these students. Mark has asked me this morning to speak to the hearts of those who go forth as ambassadors of the saving grace of Jesus Christ, obviously in a unique sense that describes the people on this platform behind me, but in a real sense that should describe all of us. Um, none of us in this room are exempted from the responsibility to go forth and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul was under attack people were accusing him of lacking the qualities necessary to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And in that passage, Paul responds with one single thought, the thought that he believes more than anything else qualifies him to be an ambassador of Christ. And I just want to read to you a few verses, if you'll turn with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me just read five verses, verses 5 through 10, as Paul responds to his accusers with an explanation of why it is that he believes that he has the right and the qualification to go forth to tell people about Jesus Christ. In this passage, there's a person who is obviously claiming to have been caught up into paradise and who has experienced things that no one else has experienced, including Paul. And in verse 4, four Paul says, this person has heard, according to this story, inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man will I boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my own weakness. For if I do, for if I do wish to boast, I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth, but I refrain from boasting, so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. And because of the surpassing greatness of God's revelation, and for this reason, and to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, and to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. But he said rather to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is perfected in weakness. Listen to Paul's words at the second part of verse 9. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A friend of mine told me the story of his daughter rushing into their bedroom on the morning of her fifth birthday. And as she rushed into the bedroom, she said, Mommy, Daddy, Mommy, Daddy, I measured myself and I'm older today, but I'm, but I'm not growing. And I think that that is a, an apt description of the most powerful disease in the church today. That we are people who are getting older, but not growing. And the Apostle Paul said, there is one sure sign that a Christian is moving away from spiritual infancy in the direction of spiritual maturity. And this is the sign in this passage. And that is that I have learned to not be fearful because of my infirmities, but to rather glory in my weaknesses. That is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And that was a prevailing characteristic of Paul's life. It is something that you read about Paul everywhere he goes. It is something he speaks of in regard to himself when he goes to share the word of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, I did not come with, or chapter 1, I did not come with words of wisdom, but I came in the power of Christ. I came in a manner that was not dependent upon my own strength, my own abilities, my personality, my giftedness, my skill, but I came as a messenger of Christ and in the power of Christ, and I came glorying in my own weaknesses. For when I am weak, Christ is strong. Glory in our weaknesses is a prerequisite to effective ministry. It seems like that that would be not the case, doesn't it? It seems like that you and I typically think, well, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait to minister when I'm, when I really know what I'm saying, or I'm going to wait to minister when I really feel confident, or I'm going to wait to give the gospel when I, when I've gone through a, a notebook or a program or a training session. I know there's a person where I work that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I am not a person who's qualified. I feel inadequate or I feel ill-equipped to share the gospel of Christ. But that is the exact place God wants us to be. And my word to those of you that are going overseas this summer and going to stay here in the continent in this ministry of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is, I know that you're going to feel infirmities. I know you're going to feel weaknesses. You're going to feel inadequate. We've taken you through a year-long of uh, period of training, but yet you still have to feel ill-equipped. But don't let that be a barrier. It was not a barrier to to Paul, and in fact, it was the foundation he stood upon that gave him confidence that real ministry was going to take place. It is glorying in our firmities that really allows us to function in the power of Christ. It's a profound thought. Let's pray together for Dr. Steadcomb. Father, we just thank you for who you are. Lord, help us to be people of, of humility people who are of weakness and dependency. Lord, everything that is in us that still is influenced by our sin, Lord, the influences of the world and the influences of Satan all compel us to rise up and to stand confidently and boldly and self-sufficiently and say that we are someone who is worthy, we are someone who are capable 
And yet, Lord, there is a paradox that we find in your word. And it is the paradox that we really are only strong when we have learned, as Paul learned, to glory in our weakness. Lord, help our minds to grasp that great truth. Help us to not be hindered to share the gospel with people around us and to minister to those even on our wing or in our dorm or, or in our apartment building because we feel so inadequate. But rather, Lord, allow us to understand that that is the very foundation of effective ministry. Lord, help us to glory in our weakness that your power may be manifested in and through us. In Christ's name, amen. What I'd like to do this morning is share three brief passages with you concerning uh, the idea that the real key out there for all of us in terms of evangelism is really to build Christ's church. And if one can remember uh, at the time of our Lord's crucifixion, uh, really the depression that really hung over the disciples, and then after the resurrection, when you come into the book of Acts, and all of a sudden you see a whole new dynamic release that begins in Jerusalem. And it's really interesting, and I think our young people have a real opportunity to share in this as they go abroad. You know, in the United States so often we're constricted by structure and by organization, but when you get out, when you get out from the boundaries of the United States especially, and when you move into foreign countries, all of a sudden it's kind of like acts of the apostles coming alive again. And what I want to do is kind of share with you this morning a little bit of that dynamic so once again you can catch the freshness of what was going on in that first century. So if you have your book, your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. I want to read first a very familiar passage that we find in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, immediately, immediately after the coming of the Holy Spirit and the exhortation to be baptized. Then, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto, unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things in common. So they sold their possessions and their goods and parted them to all men as every man hath need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their food with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And here's the key sentence. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And that takes a tremendous amount of pressure off of us. Because if you read that sentence very carefully, we see in that sentence the sovereignty and the predisposition of God. Our job is not to worry about who's going to go into the church. Our job is to be faithful in proclaiming and preaching the gospel, and it is Christ himself who will build the church. Go with me, if you will, over to Acts chapter 10, and let me show you another really dynamic passage as it relates to the building of Christ's church. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 43. This is really fabulous because what you have here, if you, if you recall the context of the book of Acts, originally for the most part what was happening was those that were converted, the Jews that were converted, the apostles that were converted, 
were first and foremost preaching the message of the gospel to the Jews. And then we had that wonderful encounter that Peter has on the rooftop in Caesarea. And as a result of that new dynamic, look what happens in the life of Peter beginning in verse 34, chapter 10. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. And young people, as you go out this summer, you will really understand that truth. That God is no respecter of persons. He's not concerned whether a person is wealthy or whether a person is poor. He's not concerned whether a person is a male or a female. He's not concerned about the ethnicity of that individual. God is not a respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that word I say ye know, which was published through all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism with John, which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who sent about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in, in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before by, before by God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to go and preach unto the people and to testify that it is he who was, who, was who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead, to, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sin. And I can't imagine how exciting that message must have been for the first time to have the message of the gospel being taken by a Jew to the Gentiles. One last passage, Acts chapter, 9, chapter 11, verses 19 to 26. And here we see the results of the message going beyond Judea. Look in verse 19. And now they who were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto, unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they were come to Antioch spoke unto the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed, and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cling unto the Lord. For he was a righteous man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and many people were added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that for a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught many people. And, with the, disi and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. It's interesting that... The disciples were not first called Christians in Jerusalem, but they were first called Christians in Antioch. 
And as you look at this passage, it is really exciting. Because what you see here is you see men and women being saved from all different racial types. You have a Cyrenian who was black. You have others from other parts of the known world coming together and being saved in the Antioch and then going out again to preach the gospel. And you know, it's really interesting when you read these passages, and, 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 and it's exciting. You know, God chooses, God always sends His best. And so often we get the idea that, you know, if you're a missionary or if you're, on, if you're called to that kind of, of, of service, you're only doing that because you couldn't do something else. That's not true. God has always chosen His choice servants for these kinds of ministries. And so what we see here is a tremendous dynamic of the Word being spread and the church growing throughout the known world at that time. And one last thing I want to say, say to you, look in verse 23. And this is a marvelous truth, and you've probably never seen it before. Who when he came, that is Barnabas, and had seen the grace of God. Do you ever think about that? How do you see the grace of God? How do you see the grace of God? You see it manifested in the lives of true believers. Regeneration was already on open display because lives had been changed and the church was being added to daily. And so young people, once again, the excitement here is, is you're going to kind of be able to get out from, from the structures and the organization that we find here in the United States. You're going to find a whole new dynamic and a whole new excitement. It was true for me when I went to Albania. And so I just want to encourage you that you know, you're carrying on in the footsteps of the Apostle Peter, that you are playing a role in building Christ's church. But don't you worry about that work in itself. Christ will do that. You just need to be faithful in that calling. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have daily to build your church. And we're so thankful that the church that you build, even the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. And for this we give you all the praise and glory in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. In 1984, I experienced probably the greatest growth spurt in my spirituality that I've experienced in all my Christian life. And that's when my wife, Molly, and I decided that we would go on a short-term mission trip to Poland. That was while the Iron Curtain was still there. In fact, Poland was under martial law at that time. So we left comfortable Orange County, and we went to a totally new and exciting experience. And I'd like just to share a couple of things about that experience because it might relate to some of these people behind me. In fact, if you'll excuse my back, I'd really like to talk to them a second, and then I'll be back, okay? This is all for you folks this morning, and so i just like to look at you as I talk to you. You know, as, as we went through the decision-making process, I'm sure we struggled with some of the same things that you did one was our inadequacy. We just said, gee, we, we haven't been to seminary. There's still so much more about the Bible that we don't know. Satan gave us about a list this long of all the reasons why we were not equipped to go uh, on a short-term mission. And another way that he worked on me, because I'm somewhat of a prideful guy, is I didn't want to raise the money to do it. And so I finally said, well, if I can figure out a way out of savings or a bonus or something... We'll go on that basis. And, and our team leader said, you know, Joe, uh, 
I'd like to ask you a question. This project, is this, is this your project or is this the Lord's project? And I said, well, it's obviously the Lord's. He said, well, then I think it's time you stop acting like it's yours. You need to go raise the money. That will help you get rid of some of the pride so that when you get there, you can really be effective. And then he reminded me too, I think in Philippians 4, where he talks about his work and the fact that he'll finish it. It's not my job to finish it. In fact, it's not my job really to even produce any results. My job is just to go with a pure heart, the right motivation, and whatever equipment that he's given me so far, and then he'll take it from there. Uh, I've yet to hear somebody come back from a short-term missions trip and say anything other than, well, you know, I think I can point to some, some advancement in the cause of the kingdom because I went, but the real benefit was what happened inside of my own life. You see, it could be worth it in God's economy to send you over there to go through this whole experience for nothing more than what it's going to do for you in, in your future ministry. It would be worth it alone if that's God's plan for your life is just for this to be nothing more than an equipping time for you. I'm sure the Lord has many more plans from that. But oftentimes, because we go, we don't see all the results we'd like to see. Then in our human evaluation, we like to think, well, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe I failed. You see, if you go with the right heart, there's no way you can fail. God alone knows what He has planned. It's His work. So I would say, I know that you've all worked hard to raise the money. You've gone through the classes. You've done a great job of preparation. I would just encourage you about now to start just relaxing in who you are in the Lord so that you can be fully used when you get there. Don't be so results-oriented that you preempt some experiences that God wants you to have in ways totally unaware of you at this point. I'm so proud of you. I wish I was going. Mark, I want one of those surveys because next year I want to go. And uh, I, I hope that time will permit that to happen. Let me just uh, include everybody now because I want to read from uh, Matthew, the ninth chapter, uh, from the 31st or 35th verse through the end of the chapter. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I'm not going to do it because I'm not a preacher, but I've heard preachers and missionaries preach a whole series out of, uh, of those few scriptures. I would just like to draw one very practical instruction for all of us. When the Lord himself asked his disciples, and I think in turn asked us, that we would pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out. We, we see behind us some uh, examples of God's answer of prayer because of prayers, some of us and others, the Lord has raised up this group of people. 
we should continue to pray that the Lord of the harvest will, will continue to do that. And then I think we should pray for these people and their experience and their effectiveness while they go. So let's just do that right now. <clears throat> Father, I'm impressed again, uh, as, as Dave Maddox pointed out, that it's not out of our strength that you accomplish your purpose. In fact, it's out of our weakness. Lord, that is so comforting to know that the responsibility for what's going to happen really isn't ours. The only responsibility that we have is to do it with a thankful and obedient spirit. So, Lord, we just ask that as these people go, that you would bless them with the many riches that you have planned. We pray that you would protect them from disease, from physical harm, from all those ways that certain that Satan loves to discourage us. Lord, there can be personality things that come up that could just interfere tremendously with what you have planned. So, Lord, we just ask that you would just put your hand on these people so that there would be nothing to detract from all that you would like to have happen in their lives and, and in the lives of others. Lord, I pray that you would help those of us who stay to be committed to be faithful to our commitment to pray and to support them daily. And Lord, we, uh, we look with great excitement to hear their reports when they come home. Lord, we just thank you again for these people and uh, their willingness to serve you in this way. And uh, we give them to you in a very special way at this time, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.